Well, all year we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus, and today we're continuing a sermon series on the life of the Apostle Paul, the life of Paul. And Paul's story is fascinating, truly, and this, this week is, is, is just, it's one of my favorite chapters in his story, um, as odd as it might be, but his story also serves as a great case study for us uh, as, what, as to what it looks like to learn the way of Jesus, learn to follow Jesus. He was born Saul of Tarsus, we've seen, and Paul was a brilliant uh, young man who was a violent persecutor of Christians at the very start of the Christian movement. But then, as we saw last week, Paul met Jesus, <laughs> which changed everything. And so, Paul the persecutor became Paul the Christian after seeing the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then being baptized by Ananias. Well, what is going to happen next? How would this zealous persecutor of Christians explain his conversion to Christ? Would his peers, his friends, his family accept him or would they reject him? What would happen when he would go back to Jerusalem? Would the Christians there accept him or after his intense persecution of them, or would they be hesitant like Ananias was initially? Well, one thing is for sure, after meeting Jesus, Paul's life would never be the same. If you have a, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to Acts chapter 9. We're going to start with the second half of verse 19, Acts 9, 19. We'll put the scripture up on the screens here for you as well. But today we're going to do something a little different. It's a little longer section. We're going to unpack it as we go. And, and then we'll close today with just one big idea, one takeaway from Paul the persecuted. Acts 9, starting with verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, let's pause here. So after his uh, conversion and his baptism, Saul stayed with his new Christian friends in Damascus. And given his incredible zeal and his education as a Pharisee, it shouldn't surprise us too much, doesn't surprise me whatsoever, to find that he immediately started preaching. But where did he start telling people that Jesus is the Son of God? It was at the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was a congregation of Jews who gathered together to pray, to read from the Hebrew Bible, to sing songs and, and, uh, of praise, usually from the Psalms, and then to live out their faith together. In other words, it would have been very similar in many ways to our church today. But the synagogue was where Saul was most comfortable. Uh, remember, he was raised by devoutly Jewish parents who traced their lineage all the way back to the ancient tribe, Israelite tribe of Benjamin. 
and then sent him to school under one of the most respected rabbis in, in Jerusalem. So did Saul go up, grow up going to synagogue? You bet, for sure. But for Saul, becoming a Christian didn't mean that his Jewish faith no longer mattered. He saw Jesus as the fulfillment of his Jewish faith. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was the one that the whole Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament today, was all about. Jesus was the one in whom Yahweh God was accomplishing his saving and redemptive work. Jesus was the true Adam, ruling and reigning over creation. He was the true Noah, providing salvation from judgment against sin. He was the true Abraham, in, in whom God was forming a people for himself. He was the true Moses, leading God's people out of captivity to sin and death. He was the true and ultimate prophet, priest, king. And the more that Saul preached this message, the more astonished the people were. Luke says they were baffled. Wasn't this the one who raised havoc in Jerusalem and now he won't stop talking about Jesus? So the force of Paul's personality comes out a little in the description that he was proving that Jesus was the Messiah. That sounds like Paul. Okay, let's keep going with verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Okay, so <laughs> the astonishment and bafflement eventually turns against him. Luke writes that after many days this happened, but we know from Paul's letters that it was a period of about three years. Three years after he became a Christian, he had to flee Damascus for his life, for his message about Jesus. Now, he mentions this time period in several letters, but I just want to read to you a section from the letter, his letter to the Galatians. Listen to this. He writes, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Okay, We've seen that in this series so far, right? I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. <laughs> True, right? But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. Okay, so that's from Galatians chapter one. So from that account, at some point, during the many days that Paul ministered in Damascus, he went into Arabia. Now, we, we have no other information about this trip. But there are several theories for why he would go into this desert wilderness 
beyond the Jordan River. Now, the most compelling to me is offered by N.T. Wright in his biography of Paul. And Wright thinks that Paul, influenced by Elijah's trip um, into Arabia to meet with God at Mount Sinai, which is found in 1 Kings 19, um, that Paul, influenced by that, wanted to go meet with God himself. Um, that's possible. It's also possible that he went into Arabia to visit, visit a friend who was out there. That's possible. It's also possible that he went into Arabia to, as like his actual first missionary journey. That's also possible. But at this point, we will have to wait until heaven to ask him ourselves. At any rate, Paul came back to Damascus and to his new Christian friends before he eventually had to escape in the dark of night. Now, this wouldn't be the last time that Paul would face violent persecution. Uh, Paul's ministry, just like Jesus' ministry, uh, would produce both followers and powerful enemies. Well, let's continue in verse 26. Where would he go next? When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Okay, again, despite his zeal and powerful intellect and education and all of that, despite his immaculate resume, the mighty Paul still needed help. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Paul needed Ananias back in Damascus. And now in Jerusalem, he needed Barnabas. So Barnabas um, is awesome. Barnabas was actually a man named Joseph, who was a Hellenistic Jew from the island of Cyprus. Now that meant that ethnically he was Jewish, but culturally he was more Greek or Roman. He probably spoke Greek. And he got the nickname of Barnabas from the apostles, which means son of encouragement. Now that says a lot, I think, about what type of man he was. There are really only two options when it comes to nicknames with guys. Either Joseph was the least encouraging guy in the group, in which case the nickname was ironic, like calling a big guy tiny, for example, or it truly was a reflection of his character. And given his commitment over the years to the fiery Apostle Paul, who I think might have been difficult to be with sometimes, it's probably the latter. I'm sure Barnabas was the kind of guy that you'd want to have in your corner. Luke writes of him later that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord through his ministry later in Antioch. May that be said of us. Well, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, after having been a Christian for three years now, remember, and having done a ton of ministry in Damascus and potentially in Arabia too, still no one trusted him in Jerusalem and I wouldn't have either. Three years is a long time, but not long enough to forget that Paul was there when Stephen was killed and he offered his approval 
for that tragic day. Or that Paul was the one who went from house to house seeking to destroy the church. The Christians in Jerusalem thought this was some sort of an evil trick. But just as the Lord provided Ananias to vouch for Paul in Damascus, so the Lord provided Barnabas to vouch for him in Jerusalem. We all need a Barnabas. Let's finish this passage starting with verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. <laughs> it's a pattern. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Okay, so this is the word of the Lord. Okay, so, so this, this here, Paul is most likely now in his late 20s. He's been a Christian for a few years. And he's back in Jerusalem where he lived and received his education and had developed powerful connections with the Sanhedrin, the Jew Jewish ruling council there, um, including the chief priest. Remember, he was going to Damascus with orders, letters from the chief priest himself. So I can imagine that it would have been tempting. It would have been very easy for him to just kind of blend back in in Jerusalem. But that wasn't Paul. He didn't blend in anywhere. Once he was accepted by the Christians in Jerusalem, Luke says that Paul spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. Just as he sought to prove that Jesus was the Messiah in Damascus, he talked and, Luke says, debated with the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem until they wanted to kill him. Now, Paul was about as subtle at this time as a hammer. It sounds like some other highly educated, highly theologically educated young men in their late 20s that I've met or perhaps was. Soon enough, Paul had people who wanted to kill him in Jerusalem too. And so, and this is the part that I just think is fun, really funny. Uh, the other believers took him down to the port at Caesarea and put him on a boat and shipped him home <laughs> back to Tarsus in Cilicia, which is in southeastern Turkey today. And did Luke do this on purpose? The Holy Spirit has a sense of humor for sure, but his next statement, verse, is it verse 31, is that once Paul was shipped off, the church enjoyed a great time of peace and growth. <laughs> Get Paul out of here. Now, of course, this isn't the end of Paul's story, uh, but this is the start of a period uh, of time of about 10 years where Paul just disappears from the record of the Bible. He doesn't come back into the story in the book of Acts until there's a, a revival in the city of Antioch, which we'll look at next week. And who should go get Paul from Tarsus? Who should remember this this fiery brother? Well, it was Barnabas, of course. Barnabas thought, you know who we could use here in Antioch? It's Paul. So after a decade of living and working and maturing in his faith in obscurity in Tarsus, 
When Paul reappears, as we'll see, he's still bold. That never changes. To his dying day, the brother is bold. But he is much more humble. It's clear that the Lord has done a major work in his life. Paul will still cause a disruption in many places during his missionary journeys. But going forward, it'll be because of his message and not as much because of the messenger. And praise God. People aren't argued or debated or forced into the kingdom of God. Paul learned this eventually. And once he did, he became the most fruitful missionary in all of history. But for us today, how do we apply this chapter of Paul's story to our lives? What do we do with this today? Well, I'll just, I'll leave you with one takeaway. There is no in-between with Jesus. Jesus is either alive or he's not. He's either the King of kings and the Lord of lords or he's not. There's no in-between. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that Jesus is either a lunatic or a liar or he is actually the Lord of all. And Paul knew this. If Jesus was who he claimed to be and did what he said that he would do, then he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And therefore, he deserves the whole of our lives. But if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be and didn't do what he claimed he would do, then he deserves nothing. There is no in-between. So when Paul realized that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead and that he was in fact the Lord of heaven and earth and he, he, he knew that he had to go from being the persecutor to being the persecuted. He knew that he had to turn all the way around and be willing to give up everything and any, anything that held him back from total obedience to Christ. There's no in-between to who Jesus is. And therefore, there's no in-between to following him. Sure, Paul would continue to wrestle, as we all do, with the temptations of the flesh. He would continue to make mistakes. He certainly had some rough edges to his personality that needed to be smoothed over time. He wasn't perfect yet but he knew that he couldn't be a Christian on Sunday and forget about Jesus for the rest of the week. He knew that he couldn't just silently accept Jesus in his heart and keep it a secret. Of, now, of course, no thinking person wants to be persecuted. We all want to be accepted and loved by the people in our lives. We all want to be accepted and loved by the people that we respect. But if Jesus is the Lord, then Paul had to tell everybody about it, even if it cost him relationships or opportunities or even his life. Now, there was a time in my life when I was pretty sure 
that Jesus was Lord. But I knew that if I really believed that, then a lot would need to change in my life. And I don't know if you've ever had a time like that, or maybe that's where you're at today. But I was hesitant to give my life to him. The authority of Jesus, in my mind, only extended to the places that I was comfortable giving him. And I was scared that I would lose control. And I was scared that, of what it might cost me if I were to give my life to him. And I, I was scared that I might have to give up things that I thought at the time that I needed. But I knew that on some level, if Jesus was real, then he deserved everything. But as Paul would later write, whatever I thought were gains apart from Jesus were actually losses because nothing compares to knowing Jesus and being known by him. So today, what about you? Where are you at in your heart in relation to Jesus? Now, maybe you don't know what you think about him. Maybe you haven't put much thought into it. I would just say this. If there's even a chance that he is who he claimed to be, and did what he said that he would do, then isn't it worth it to find out? Don't be passive. Dig in and see what you think. This whole next year, we're going to unpack the Gospel of John. That might be a great opportunity for you to come face to face with this person of Jesus. If he's real, you have everything to gain. Or maybe today you're thinking about becoming a Christian. Then you need to know what you're getting into. It's a whole life commitment. Jesus called all people to follow him, but he was constantly then telling them to count the cost. If you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it first, he would say. Friends, if you're ready to pay this cost, because who he is and all that he offers is worth the price. If you're ready to pay the cost, including loving your enemy and praying for those who might persecute you, then you're ready. Or maybe today you're a young believer. You're like Paul in Damascus. Then maybe you need some time to learn and grow and mature in your faith. Can I just respectfully say, don't try and win arguments for Jesus. <laughs> Arguing and debating can be fun, but it's rarely helpful to someone else's faith. Invite people into your life, love them, and let the whole church share good news with them. As a young believer, be humble. Be a learner. How much did Paul learn in the 10 years that he was in Tarsus? The Apostle Peter would say later in his life, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 
Or maybe today you are a mature believer. Then maybe you need to be like Barnabas and come alongside a younger believer. Help them. Encourage them. Correct them gently. Put them on a ship and send them home if they need it. <laughs> you can come to faith in an instant, friends. But it takes many years to grow and mature in your faith. So devote yourselves to this task for others. No one matures on their own. Well, finally, you might still, no matter where you are in your faith, ask the Lord to reveal any area of your heart or your mind or your life that is not given over to the Lordship of Christ. If he is the Lord, then he is the Lord of all. If you can trust him with your salvation, you can trust him with everything. There is no in-between with Jesus. But when he becomes the Lord of all, when he increases and when we decrease, when his spirit, spirit bears good fruit in our lives, it's the best. Amen. There's nothing better. There's no better life. There's no better way. So today, as a church, as individuals and as a body, may we enjoy a time of peace and strengthening. Lord, please. May we live in the fear of the Lord and be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, if it be your will, may we increase in numbers for your glory and our joy and the good of all people. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you go before us and you call us to follow. And yet, Lord, you know the cost. What you said about Paul when he became a Christian was that he would suffer. And yet you, were, you would still use him and you would still mold him you would still be faithful to him along the journey. And Lord Jesus, I believe that that same promise is true for us today. If we follow you, we follow one who endured the cross. So Lord, we might suffer. Help us to suffer well. Help us to stay faithful. Help us to stay loving. Help us to pray for those who persecute us even when we don't want to. And Lord, please encourage us with your presence. Encourage us with your power, with your spirit. Encourage us with the ability to look back and see how far we've come, not by our merit, but by your grace, Lord. Encourage us as we continue to take steps forward in following you all the days of our lives. We love you and pray in Jesus' name.